The Beerer Podcast. Research matters. Welcome to a special Christmas episode of The Beerer Podcast, where we recap some of the best moments of our guests from season three. I'm Nick Johnson, the Chief Executive of Beerer, and it's been my pleasure to be joined over the past few months by a diverse group of speakers covering a lot of different aspects of education and telling some timely issues. We kicked off the season with Ratha Peramol, a lecturer from the University of East London and a PhD student at King's College London. In the following clip, she discusses the importance of addressing the degree awarding gap between black and minority students from their white counterparts. So the degree awarding gap is is the terminology that's used to describe the difference in outcomes between black and minority ethnic students at university in comparison to their white counterparts. So the, the degree awarding gap is essentially a lower outcome for minority ethnic students. And we see it occurring right the way through their undergraduate studies and also into their degree classifications. Now, this isn't something that happens across the board because there are some institutions that have succeeded in narrowing or reducing their degree awarding gap. But it is accurate to say that the degree awarding gap remains fairly prevalent in the higher education sector in the country. And, and I mean, I'm right in thinking when, when you presented at the Bureau of Conference, you were talking about it, that it is almost in every higher education institution and also across all subjects? Yes. If there are differences in outcomes between black and minority ethnic students and their white counterparts, their white peers, but the size, if you like, of those differences or the gaps differs depending on a variety of factors, which can include the the discipline of study, the institution, the diversity of students and staff at the institution or indeed in a particular school or college. There are infrastructure and institutional factors that can also come into play. And this is only a small number of the factors that research has demonstrated can have an impact on the extent of the degree awarding gap in a higher education institution. In my second interview with Adam Peter Lang from the Institute of Education, he discussed the way the prevent agenda has been used in schools and in the following extract talks about the difficulties of getting access to schools when conducting research and his own personal experience of this. Okay, well, the first thing I'll say about access is I did speak at a leadership event for Bureau a while ago about the problem of access because I've had quite a few coffees bought for me since I returned to study by younger academics and researchers who are desperate to get access to schools. And it's a big issue. And it was an issue when I was a school leader, you know, people approaching. And so I think I was giving some, not exactly tips, but some pointers for how you could gain access. I got support from the union, the Association of School and College Leaders, in terms of my research. And one of the people I did interview had actually run uh, the national training for the prevent duty, not the government training, because there was a there was a lack of training and schools were crying out for something. So she and a colleague ran some of that. And I did attend that and contribute towards it, actually, but I interviewed her as well. And so I had that sort of what's badged up a little bit with the support, and that helped to get access, particularly, as I said earlier, this is a very sensitive and controversial issue. What was I going to get people to say other than, that the prevent duty is a good thing and we implement it. Because if you don't say that, as a school leader, you lose your job. So how could I dig 
beneath that. So that was one thing. And subsequently, as I say, I've, I've, I have given some informal support to other colleagues, particularly international colleagues, who are trying to get into English schools to do research, uh, sometimes in a rather naive way. And, that, uh, uh, you know, it might be research on mathematics or linguistics or, or whatever. But I think a little bit more needs to be done by the universities to provide some pointers, as I say, for how to do that, because schools are busy places, but also they're um, sensitive to outsiders coming in. So that's the first thing. So I will be quite honest with you. I used some contacts in terms of approaching areas, but I was quite well known in London, but I chose in schools that didn't necessarily know me, but I knew that I could gain good access to and obviously approaching the head teachers or principals. In our third episode, Rebecca Loder and Joanne Hughes from Queen's University Belfast spoke to me about the principles of shared education in divided societies and how their research has shed light on this and developed practice which has evolved over time. I think the most striking thing for me is, and having grown up in Northern Ireland and gone to a separate school, myself had a separate school experience all the way through from primary to post-primary. I think one of the biggest achievements of shared education is that the boundaries between our schools are now more porous. It's a term that um, my colleague Tony Gallagher um, came up with, but it's very much true that um, it's now the norm that children from different schools move between those schools and are comfortable with that. So it's not unusual. There's now around two thirds of all schools participate in shared education. So it's not unusual to have kids wearing a different uniform who are from the other group, having them present within your school or teachers from that other group present within your school. So I I think that has been a a fairly um, significant outcome of shared education that people are now just very comfortable and I think therein that challenges some of these notions of what we consider boundaries you know we would have understood that other school as belonging to the other community and somewhere that I am not welcome or it's a space that I don't belong in whereas shared education has now created these spaces that are actually shared and shared in people's mental representations of them as well as the kind of physical reality of moving between those spaces and so I think that's an important outcome. There are a couple of things that's, that stick in my mind. Some have been isolated incidents that I've come across through the research of what the young people have developed as a result of participation in shared education so they can be things like even just starting bands with pupils from the other school who they might not have known before. And so those small little things at local level can be quite significant in in the lives of those young people. I think also some of the risks that teachers have taken in doing shared education work. One particular example that comes to my mind is a school located in quite a loyalist area where the teacher was really working with the other school to begin to introduce the Irish language, which would be very contentious. But she was very keen to be able to do that and to be able to bring some of the sort of debunk some of the ideas and notions around Irish, the Irish language and be able to make that part of the people's heritage. So some of these kinds of elements are really significant. They might not seem like huge advances looking at from the outside, but actually at a local level, those are real 
significant developments and an accumulation of small but significant developments will make a big difference. In episode four, Beera's president, Dominic Wise, sat down with Professor Neil Mercer from the University of Cambridge following his receipt of this year's John Nisbet Fellowship. In this clip, Neil discusses the evolution of educational research approaches throughout his career. Within psychology, there has become a greater awareness of how you have to take account of the realities of everyday life rather than abstracting certain things and studying them in a limited way. But within educational research, one of the changes that I'm most pleased by, I think, is the move towards mixed methods. I started to realise, and this was a while back when I was working with Rupert Wegerich at the OU initially, we started to realise that there were these two camps in education research which were quantitative and qualitative, and neither grain shall meet. And I actually remember being at one or two meetings where quantitative researchers started to speak. A qualitative researcher stood up and said, I'm not hearing any of this, and walked out. And, you know, there were these ideological attachments, if you like, to these two approaches. And it seemed to us that that was not the way to do it. The way to do it was to look at the problem and see, one, what was the problem and what methods would address it best? And secondly, what kind of evidence did you want to obtain? Who was it meant to convince? What was it meant to come out with as a conclusion, you know, in terms of impact? So that, for me, is, is great. You know, and I, I really think, I hope now, that, that no doctoral or master's students in education are ever expected or wished to, to, to join a camp like that, you know. And so I think that's a really important one. Another one, I think, is the technology. Ha! When I was doing my PhD at Leicester, there was one computer which occupied almost all of a small building. And the only time I could get on it to analyse my data was by getting a slot at two to four in the morning because I was low down on the pecking you know, list. And, and that was how it was. And it was very you know, complicated. And here I am sitting with something that's hundreds of times more powerful just on my desk. And that was one thing that really did make a difference. And not just the qualitative research, because we've since had technological advances in the way you can make videos, the way you can analyse videos, the quality of sound recordings and so on. And analytic software, like concordance software, which you know linguists use a lot and people like me have used quite a lot, which you can see the real talk going on and then yet bring it down to some measurable or, or analysable stuff. Next up, I spoke to Jake Anders from University College London, who discussed the launch of the new research centre there, the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, their ambitious research and policy agenda, and the difficulties of the launch during lockdown. And now, as you say, you're, you're at the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at, at UCL IOE. I'm right in thinking that's, that's been going for just around two years now, is that right? Yes. So we started, we soft launched just a couple of months before the pandemic uh, hit, which uh, was <laughs> perhaps poor timing in some ways, but uh, it, it's, it's worked out uh, okay. It means that, yeah, we, we've been, uh, as, as a team, kind of forged through lockdown. We, we had, you know, probably only three or four in-person team meetings as a, as a whole centre yeah. before all of our meetings were, were online and the same as everyone else, but uh, it was quite, quite a transition. But um, 
a good time and, uh, you know, in some ways an, uh, certainly an interesting time to be working in, in the field. And it's one that, yeah. you know, we've certainly tried to make sure that we're engaging with all the issues that have arisen. One of the major things that the centre has obviously been known for during the pandemic has been some of the work on grades and and the challenges of teacher assessed grades uh, during that have come to the fore through the the pandemic. Yeah. And, and I mean, tell us a little bit about the, I suppose, the centre's research themes or, or sort of what, what was your focus, I suppose, pre-pandemic? And I mean, I guess how that's been adapted during the pandemic, but what what's the, the centre there to do? So the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, or CPO, uh, as we call it for, for short, is, as the name suggests, really focused on tackling uh, or using education policy and wider practice to to tackle unequal opportunities that 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 exist for 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 young people uh, in in the chances they have in life we work across the lifespan we have uh, strands of research that reach all the way from early years schools tertiary so incorporating both further and higher education and into adulthood and in in that sense we we're then opportunistic and taken by yeah opportunities and, and interests that come along to to look at particular policies or interventions or uh, programs that all trying to uh, address educational inequality at these different phases in in the the life course and and the government's education policies, of course, as they relate to those different parts of the uh, the education system and and beyond, and then engaging with trying to properly analyse, evaluate, critique the work that those those policies and and practices and and the implications that they are having, whether kind of intentionally or or not, for young people's life chances. In episode six, Emily Merchant from Swansea University joined us to discuss her research combining health data with education, and here discusses her research into the experience of children during the pandemic. Sure. So the kind of the kind of final part that I'm currently working on and kind of writing, doing the analyses and writing the, the paper at the moment is to try to profile children that either were tested for COVID nineteen or tested positive for COVID nineteen using the data from the HAPPEN survey. So because the survey has got kind of a range of health-related and wellbeing-related information, and because we know that kind of previous research shows that, you know, positive higher health and wellbeing is associated with things like reduced levels of infection, we're kind of hypothesizing that there might be a profile of children based on their health and wellbeing behaviors that were maybe more likely to test positive. So yeah, I'm currently linking the HAPPEN data with COVID-19 data for the children within the HAPPEN data set to be able to look at the characteristics of children that tested positive for COVID-19. That sounds really interesting. When are you hoping to, to have that out in the public domain? So hopefully the paper will be submitted by Christmas. So right. I've just finished, uh, just redone some analyses actually. So to include children's age at the time of test, because we've got quite a large sample of um, happen kind of children as such now yeah. some of them are now kind of 18 yeah. and others that took part in the survey would be 11 and we know that there's sort of you know age-related dynamics with COVID-19 testing positive so yes hopefully within the next two months it's currently October hopefully within by December I will have uh-huh. submitted that paper and published it as a pre-print and I've got to say that's kind of been 
quite important during the pandemic. I think there's been a new level of acceptance towards preprints. And of course, they're not peer reviewed. And, you know, you've always got to make sure you say that disclaimer. But I think it's been a great way to translate and to disseminate your findings rapidly to the public, to policy, to practice. Yeah. I had a fascinating discussion with Sue Fletcher Watson from the University of Edinburgh, who talked about her work on neurodiversity and how we seek to group and define people. Yeah, so there are different ways, and I don't think there is one correct definition or or application. But I mean, a simple scientific definition is to say that the human race is neurodiverse. We're all different in the way that we take in information, process information, and therefore kind of act and and respond to the world. Um, And that's what neurodiversity is. But extrapolating from that a little bit, I suppose those differences, you know, they can be the sort of small individual differences from one person to the next but also kind of bigger categorical differences. Um, So we often use the metaphor of trees to talk about this. You know, every apple tree is unique, but they still belong to the category of apple trees. And they are quite different from palm trees or willow trees. And these kind of groups of trees or categories of trees need different kinds of environments to thrive, right? The willow tree wants to grow by the water and the palm tree wants lots of sunshine. And I think you can think about neurodiversity in the same term, you know, we're all unique, but but we can group ourselves in useful ways into autistic people or people with ADHD or people with dyslexia. And all of those ways of being are valuable and and perfect, but they also need maybe different conditions in which to thrive. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about neurodiversity is understanding what are the conditions that would help people thrive and how can we create those conditions in our schools and in our homes and in our healthcare and society more generally. In episode eight, Natalie Kuchikova from the Open University and the University of Stavanger spoke about using digital resources to create personalised educational and reading materials and how these can benefit children. It sort of started when I was doing my PhD. So I noticed that when it comes to shared reading uh, between parents and children, uh, there is this element in the process where the story becomes more meaningful. There are some moments when the parents and the children start reminiscing or when they make some intertextual references, so when they say, this is like that book you read before, and when they draw on the child's personal experience. So when parents say things like, oh, the literate writing wood has the same color shirt as you have. Uh, so I began thinking whether we could design books that would encourage more of such personal links. And when I began the research, this was also part of my master's, these personalized books, I was looking at books that can be designed with a direct reference to the child's life. Uh, So that would contain their name or their favorite place to play or their favorite toy or breakfast food. And at the beginning, these books were made with cardboard and um, in collaboration with parents. But then iPads came along and (laughs) I saw the many multimedia creation possibilities with them. So instead of creating these personalized books on paper, they became uh, personalized books on tablets. 
And to close out the series, I spoke to Yinka Olashoga from the University of Sheffield and her colleague Kate Cowan from University College London to discuss their work on children's play and how in particular they've been mapping the differences in children's play historically with a comparison to how it's changed under COVID. So I guess from these earlier projects like Playing the Archive and even earlier projects like Children's Playground Games in the New Media Age, there's been this long-standing collaboration between us at the IOE and the team at University of Sheffield, kind of interested in contemporary play, play of the past and the work of the OPs. And so we were kind of alert and interested in changes to play during this time. You know, we knew that the pandemic was going to be having huge consequences for where and when and how and with who children could play as schools closed, playgrounds were locked down, social distancing measures came into force and so on. So we were aware that this was going to be having an impact and that, of course, children's play always responds to and it makes sense of and um, can show us how children are experiencing things going on in the world. So we had a sense, an idea that the pandemic might start to becoming a feature of play, a, a theme that children touched upon. And we heard kind of anecdotal examples as well. So I remember there was a letter to The Guardian that was talking about some children at a birthday party kind of early on in the pandemic in March 2020 playing coronavirus tag. And then we heard about sort of children adapting games and uh, in the playground to try and avoid touching. So making up, you know, playing games like shadow tag and things like that. We saw pictures of children who've made masks for their toys, their dolls, their teddies, things like that. So we were kind of, it was on our radar that this was happening. And we decided to put in a proposal to the UKRI's rapid response COVID research program. And we were really lucky to get funding for a 15 month project to look at this in more detail by setting up what we've called an observatory of play during the pandemic. The full episodes from this series and all others are available to download from the usual podcast platforms, as well as the Bira website. And please do subscribe for all future episodes. We'll shortly be starting recording the new series, and topics there will include the Bira Research Commission on Environmental Sustainability, Global Perspectives on Child and Youth Futures After COVID, Transitions from Vocational to Higher Education, and Bira's wider work on the state of education as an academic discipline. We always welcome ideas for topics or speakers, so please do get in touch with us via the following email address. That's podcast at bira.ac.uk. And if you're a Bira member, and thank you very much for being part of our community for the past year, please do make sure you access all the digital resources on our website, and if you're not a Vera member, please do thinking about joining us as we head into 2022. To find out more, please visit www.vera.ac.uk. I really hope you've enjoyed this series and indeed all the podcasts this year and look forward to talking again in 2022.